Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. I love how Scott uh, just mentioned that next weekend is a holiday for everybody. I just want to remind Scott, except for us, my man, we are working next weekend. Very important weekend for Life of Church. Friends, my name is Michael. If I've not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, um, New Life is a family of churches and I, and I have the privilege of serving across all three churches. And um, it's a privilege to be here today because New Life Kulungada, for such a young church, has such a great litany of preachers. You guys have phenomenal teaching and preaching every week. Amen. Oh, come on, guys. They're in the room. We've got Mika in the room. Scott's in the room. David's not well today. We've got Beck in the room. You have phenomenal preachers. Katie's in the room. Phenomenal preachers here at Cool and Gutter. Amen. So here's my challenge. If you love the preaching at Cool and Gutter, I would encourage you to come next weekend because it's going to be one of the best times to hear the preaching here. If you don't like the preaching today, don't come to Easter United because I'm preaching there as well. So if, uh, if you're like, oh, that was a bit boring, I'll tell you where to avoid next Sunday afternoon. Uh, that service together. Friends, I've got a bit of a challenge today as we, we wrap up our series in Genesis. If it's your first time here, or um, maybe you might have short-term memory loss and not know what we did the last two weeks, or you've not been with us for the last two weeks, we're, we're actually walking through the story of a man named Joseph. And um, I, I, funny for this conversation we were having recently, I actually wrote the series outline for this and for some reason thought it was a great idea to preach on five whole chapters of Genesis in one week on the last week of this series. We've got a, we've got a big challenge ahead of us today. So I'm going to pray in a moment. But what we're going to do today is I'm going to start with a bit of an understanding and frame us. And then I'm going to let us know how we'll approach Scripture today. I believe teaching and preaching the Word of God is a really weighty task. And we don't take it lightly here at New Life. Uh, but having said that, when you've got to preach five chapters in a Sunday, we're not going to go line by line and verse by verse today, diving deep into Hebrew and Greek words in case you were hoping. So you won't become bilingual today through this sermon, but hopefully you'll be refreshed and replenished and your soul will be encouraged. I want to begin today with a story. This is a picture of Ruby. Ruby was a young black African-American woman uh, in the 1960s. She was the first girl to be signed up to an integrated schooling program. And when she was signed up to the first school that chose to integrate black and white children together, all the white children unenrolled from the school. So she was taken to school on her first day in a car with her mother explaining to her that the protesters that lined the streets didn't actually know what they were talking about. When they screamed in her face that she should not be allowed to gain the same education as their white children, she didn't quite understand. When her mother said to her, as you go and go to and come from school, you will have two police in front of you and two police behind you. It was bewildering to her to know why the fact of her receiving education was such a piece of controversy. And even as she walked into school and they would hold up effigies, of Ruby. If you don't know effigy, effigy is like a likeness of Ruby in a coffin before her face as she went to get an education, proclaiming that they would want her dead rather than being integrated with their children. You can kind of gain the horrors that a six-year-old girl would have been subjected to. And on the way to school, her mum would say the same thing to her, Ruby, never forget, God is with you everywhere. Pray. Pray. Say, God, help me. Help me today, for you are with me. And one day, Ruby forgot to pray on the way to school in the car. So she hopped out of the car, the, 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 the car and on the way to school, and still every day, the lawn was lined with protesters yelling at her, shouting to her, and she could be seen talking, apparently it seemed, to the protesters who were yelling words of hate to Ruby as she walked in to school. And a psychiatrist asked her the very next day because they, they appointed a psychiatrist to her because of the weight and the, the heaviness of what she was walking through. And they said to her, Ruby, we noticed you were talking yesterday to the protesters. What were you saying? She said, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying. 
And this psychiatrist said, oh, what were the words that you were praying? Were you praying for God's help? Were you praying for God's protection? She said, no. I just said this, please, God, forgive these people. Because even if they say these mean things to me, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them. Just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. A six-year-old African-American girl with an image held up in front of her of her death. God forgive them. Friends, there is a truth today that I, I just want to unpack for us. It's simply this. We all need forgiveness. But we will all need to forgive. We all need forgiveness. And at some stage in our life, we will all need to forgive. And I highlight the story of Ruby because it's not a common story, is it? Our world is filled with revenge. I mean, let's just be honest. Those of you who are parents in the room, your teacher says one unkind thing to your, to your child and suddenly it's like, I'm writing a five-page email to that teacher today, right? And this story kind of, now I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but as a former teacher, I, I'm like suggesting maybe, maybe Ruby's story has something for us today. We get cut off. We get cut off on the way here. Someone calls us out. But it gets more than that, doesn't it? There are people in this room who you've walked in here today with guilt, with shame. And coming to church is a part of your behavior modification scheme to be better. That's not God's wish for you. He doesn't want you to walk out of here with the same guilt you walked in. There are some of you here today that are holding people guilty. And I want to let you know that likewise, God does not want you to walk out of this room longing for revenge, but freed by hope. And to do that today, we're going to step into the story of Joseph. But friends, remember, we all need forgiveness. And one day, each of us will need to forgive. Now, what we're going to do today to get to this point of forgiveness, we need to do a bit of work in Scripture. Everyone take a deep breath. Now, some of you didn't breathe when I said, so I hope you are breathing normally now. The reason why I say that is the way we kind of approach Scripture here at New Life is we like to preach an expository as much as possible. Sometimes we do it thematically. And expository means that we kind of get on a jet ski and we're like zooming across the Great Barrier Reef, looking down at the details of what we can see. We know we're not doing everything perfectly, but that's the hope that we preach Scripture in a way that you long to go home and scuba dive down to see the fish for yourself. Today, we're not on a jet ski zooming across. We're more like in a charter plane, really racing across the Great Barrier Reef. And what I'm going to do today is I want to point out landscapes and, and like icons that, that you need to remember from the story. My hope is that you don't come up and be like, you forgot this part. I did, and it's not all in there. But I want to lead us to the beats of Joseph's stories that are important for us to know why God leads us towards forgiveness today. Joseph's story, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, begins in a land called Canaan. He's with his father, Jacob, and his, uh, there are two wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel. And they have some slaves as well. And Jacob and his family give birth to about 13 children. At the time our story starts, 13 sons. At the time our story starts, there's only 12 boys, and the youngest of whom is Joseph. Joseph has a dream. Pretty much, Scott preached on this two weeks ago, the dream says this. It says, all my brothers and family will one day bow down to me. Now you can imagine if the youngest person in your family came up to you and you're like, one day you will bow down to me. I am the youngest in my family. It is a stigma we have. We think that everyone will serve us one day. And usually it ends up being correct, spoiled and not ashamed of it. There's this sense, right, with Joseph. Now, now how does his older siblings respond to this? Well, they maybe overreact. They beat him up, they take off his clothes, they stick him in a well, they long for him to die. And in a moment of conscience, they go, maybe we shouldn't kill our brother, but instead they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph goes from being favoured son to now he becomes an estranged slave. He's sold to the house of Potiphar, where he rises to prominence because God is with him there. And in that moment, after he's been sold into Egypt, he, he, he lifts his place to a moment where he now runs Potiphar's house. But those of you who were with us two weeks ago would remember Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of doing something he didn't do and Potiphar throws him in prison. And in this moment, J. Joseph is gone from favoured son, estranged slave to falsely accused uh, prisoner. 
And in prison, he comes across these two other prisoners who say to him, they have these dreams and he interprets them. He says, never forget who I am. But then they forget who he is until one day, two years after Joseph has been in prison, he is from the throne room of Pharaoh himself. See, Pharaoh, friends, has had a dream. Now, this is where we pick up the story. And if you're like, wow, we moved really fast through that. That was quickly. Friends, we're only just getting started. In Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, who was the divine God of Egypt, back in those days, believed to be divine himself, be believed to actually have eternal divinity for all of time. Pharaoh, the emperor, the king of Rome, the king of Egypt, not Rome, has two dreams and no one can interpret them. They're weird dreams. When I read these dreams, as I'm going to challenge you to go do in, in Genesis chapter 41, it seems like Pharaoh has a bit of indigestion. But these dreams aren't indigestion. They're dreams from God. And this prisoner who's now become Pharaoh's cupbearer, he comes back and he says, Pharaoh, I know a man in prison who can interpret your dreams. Joseph is pulled out of prison, brought into the throne room of Pharaoh. And in, in, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 15, we read this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph responds. Now, just remember this, right? He's gone from favoured son, beat up slave, falsely accused servant of Potiphar, forgotten prisoner, and he's brought into the throne room of Pharaoh. And in that moment, would you be happy with God or disgruntled with God? How does Joseph respond? Hey, I can't do this, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph's faith is a whole sermon series in and of itself. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream as prophetic. He says, Pharaoh, you've had these dream about wheat and cows. It's not indigestion. It's not just a bad night. Here's what's going to happen. For the next seven years, Egypt will be a land of plenty. We will produce a lot of crop. But seven years after that, there will be seven years of famine. If you want to be protected against this, Pharaoh, your dreams are telling you, appoint a man who will be able to gather the excess store of our crop. And in seven years' time, we will be able to last the famine because we have been wise. Pharaoh goes, where will I be able to find such a man? And Joseph's like, you rang. In Genesis chapter 41, we read this. Joseph, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. From favoured son, estranged slave, accused abuser, forgotten prisoner, to now he is the governor of Egypt. Just like every good story, this, however, is only the beginning. It reaches a climax because Egypt is plunged into famine, but they have stores. But not just Egypt, in a distant land far away, a land called Canaan is also struggling. A land where Joseph's family, whose brothers sold him into slavery, are hungry. And the story continues in, verse, in chapter 42. When Jacob, his father, also known as Israel, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Quick, quote, quick thought, maybe the brothers were looking at each other because they too knew that there was grain down in Egypt, but they also knew who they'd sold it down to Egypt. And maybe they were hoping, I hope dad doesn't ask us to go to the one place where we may run into someone that one day we hope to never see again, our brother who we sold into slavery. But the father, not knowing that this is what happened, that he thinks that Joseph is dead, sends his sons down. And we start to see God's greater narrative at work. The brothers come to Egypt and we jump down to verse 40, uh, 42, verse 6 to 7, where we read the sons and the brothers come into Joseph's presence. Now, Joseph was governor of the land, we read, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brother arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke hardly harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Now let's pause. Do you remember what Joseph's dream was? That they would bow down before him. Here in a moment, we start to see how God weaves stories beautifully together. And I'll touch on this in a second. But don't miss this. Favored son, estranged slave, accused abuser, forgotten prisoner, governor of Egypt, and now he stands before as judge of his brothers. 
how God is working this story is deeply and beautiful in many mighty ways. But the brothers don't recognize Joseph. Now, Joseph technically sends for the next three chapters his brothers on a wild goose chase where he throws them into prison because he's accusing them of being spies. And in this moment, I don't think there's a lot of godliness that we can detect from Joseph. I don't think in moments when you have someone before you that's offended you, the next step is to put them through the ringer and try them and test them the way that Joseph does. What we do see from his brothers is his brothers in this moment still carry the weight of what they did to Joseph. Not knowing that the governor standing before them was indeed their brother. Whilst they were in prison under Joseph's rule, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. There's a beautiful moment here where the brothers turn around and they say, hey, we are being punished for what we did. And I want to just pause here for a moment and just suggest that today some of you are living like this. What are Joseph's brothers saying? Because we sinned many years ago, this is divine justice against us. This is not how God's, God's judgment works. There are some of you here today that believe your car broke down this week because you did something wrong two weeks ago. There's some of you here today who believe that you're walking through hardship now because of something you did five years ago. This is called karma, not Christianity. The hardship of our life may be consequences of our decision, but is very rarely, if ever, divine judgment of our sins. We sometimes think that it is a retributive act of God. And so what we try to do, if we think, if I do something wrong, something wrong is coming for me. What we end up doing is going to go, therefore, if I just start doing things right, then good things will come to me. The problem with this is, is that when bad things start happening to us, even when we're acting good, we think God owes us something he doesn't. So I'm just highlighting today, if you've come today bearing guilt and thinking that if you just be a better person, life will get better. That's the mistake the brothers make. Because that's not what forgiveness in God looks like. And it's not the thing that should drive us to forgiveness. And there was a moment when they bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin, to Joseph. Joseph sends them home, says, I will give you grain, but I want you to come home, come back to me and bring the youngest brother. Why does Joseph ask for the youngest brother? Because one day he was the youngest brother. He wants to know, how do you treat the next me? And when he sees Benjamin, he weeps. He weeps because his heart is overcome by seeing someone who got to live a life he never got to live. And in this moment, there's this beautiful thing where he blesses Benjamin, but he has one last test for his brothers. He sends them away with Benjamin as well, but he sneaks his drinking cup into Benjamin's sack. And in that moment, he, he chases after them and says, one of you stolen my drinking cup, my prized jewel. And they said, listen, none of us have stolen it, Joseph. And, he, and they say, if any of us have stolen it, you can take his life. And they open up sack after sack. They open up the grain sacks. And then in the moment, they pull out the cup from Benjamin's. And they realize they've just given up the life of their youngest brother again. And we see a beautiful plea from Judah, who bows down before Joseph. And he says this, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. For those of you that were with us two weeks ago, this is a changed man. Two weeks ago at the start of Joseph's life, when they lied about Joseph being killed, Judah didn't care about how his father would feel. He just cared about his place in the family. There's a shift in the story. And in this moment, Joseph is overcome with grief and compassion for his brothers. He can't stand it anymore. When the world says retribution and revenge, Joseph's heart is transformed into forgiveness. And we read in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph weeps upon his brothers. He falls on and says, I am Joseph, your brother. Now in this moment, can you imagine how weird that would have been 30 years after the fact, these brothers who are hungry, who are starving and thinking that the governor of Egypt is about to kill them. He turns around and goes, I'm the guy you sold into slavery. Surprise! They don't go, yeah! They're like, oh no, he's definitely going to kill us now. And in this moment, Joseph calls them and says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He forgives them because there are two things that Joseph understands. The first one is this. God prevails. The second one is this, forgiveness wins. Friends, we're about halfway to three quarters through my sermon, but it's now that I want to pray. Would you join with me?
gracious God, as we've just heard the story of Joseph, and we unpack these two thoughts, what it means for God to prevail, for forgiveness to win. I, God, I just got to be honest, I need your help. I can't do this. But there is truth today. You want us to glean from Scripture. So Holy Spirit, speak. Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, 8 a.m. Come on, all God's people said, this will go as fast as you are loud, okay? So here we are. God prevails and forgiveness wins. God prevails. If you could know the end of your life, would you? If you could know how your story finishes up, would you seek to find it out? There's a certain group of people in the world that I find quite annoying that I think shouldn't really uh, be allowed to read books. I don't know if this might be your kind of person, but I found out there's a group of people that when they pick up a novel, they don't read the first page. Have you ever met these people? They turn to the back of the book and they read the last chapter first. Are any of you in this room? We would love to pray for you at the end of the service. That is not how books should be read. It should be surprising, right? Like there's this sense. And, and, and it, it frustrates us. But, but why? Because I think we get to the end and then they go back to the beginning. And I'm like, you know, you know what happens. Where's the suspense? Where's no, Katie? It's terrible. Oh, you're with me. Okay, thank you. I'm like, oh no, an elder is condemning me from the place. Now, why, why do we do that though? We want to know how it ends. Why? So we can withstand the suffering and the suspense the whole way through. Now, most people say, no, nah, I want to know if the book's worth reading at all. And that's true. But I wonder if you knew how your story ended, how you would act. The reason why I say this is Joshua found, Joseph found out, right? Joseph got to see the last couple of pages. He got to see it at the start of his life. One day, everyone will bow down to you. And when he read that, he's like, oh, yes. And he started to parade around. You see, this is why you shouldn't know the end of the story first. You act wrong. You start telling people things you shouldn't tell them. And there's this moment where he starts to parade around his brothers. He's saying, look how good I one day will be. But what's the problem? That he misses all the suffering that God will lead him on from here to there. See, friends, sometimes I wonder, we don't know how exactly how our stories will end because then we'll forget there's a lot that needs to happen in our life. There's a lot that needs to happen in our life. But over this time, God wanted to teach Joseph a simple lesson. That God had a plan and no mistake or evil of humanity could thwart it. That God would prevail. Walter Brueggemann says it like this about Joseph's dream. He says, God moves on to keep the dream. The human actors in Joseph's story make their choices and they have their freedoms in their ways. But through and in spite of such freedom, God is at work. I say this to you today because there are some of you in this room that are in the middle of a storm right now. You feel like no one's at control. You've been calling out, Jesus, take the wheel. And you're hearing silence the whole time. And you're wondering what is going on. Life feels like it's in free fall. Joseph can relate. His dream landed him to be sold into slavery. At which point in that moment do you think God, Joseph's like, oh, God's got this, feels good. He gets to pot of his house. He gets elevated to a stage of high position. He's like, oh, finally the blessings have come. Then he gets falsely accused for doing the right thing. Ah, oh, God's got this. This feels good. He's in prison. He gets elevated to a higher place in prison. And he's like, oh man, the blessings have come. He says to two prisoners, don't forget me when I do good things for you. And they forget him. God's, God's got this. Friends, sometimes there are moments in our life where we need to recognize we don't think God's got this. That's why we read the Word of God. Joseph's story happened over like 30, 40 years. Abraham's story happened over 100 years. The whole Bible was written over thousands of years. And in it, we see a weaving together story where humanity make evil decision after evil decision. But the one testimony comes out of it. It's in the name of Jacob, whose name was Israel, which means God prevails. Why is that an encouragement? Because there are some times when you're in the middle of a storm, you need to remember the God of Joseph is our God as well and that He knows how the story ends. He's not asking you to know that. He's asking you to trust the one who holds the pen. See, the idea of God prevailing is actually a theological idea that says we believe our God is sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? It's a simple thing. It's that God is in control. Joseph believed this. In this moment, he didn't look at his brothers and be like, you wretches. Look what you did to me and I look, I'm going to pay you back right now. 
There was a moment where all the suffering and all the pain that Joseph went through, he said, God has got to be at work here. What does he say? He says, but God, brothers, God sent me ahead of you. He sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives. Then he says, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph believes God is in control. And here's what I want to ask you today. In the middle of what you're walking through, in the middle of your cancer diagnosis, in the middle of your financial hardship, in the middle of the hard things that we're walking through, do you actually hold to the hope that God is in control? The reason why we don't is we ask ourselves our question. If God is in control, why is this happening? God is in control and evil things happening are two truths that can coexist together. But evil doesn't come from God. It's so important for us to understand. God permits human agency, but He is not intimidated by human agency. God does not stand back and go, they ate the fruit of the tree. What on earth are we going to do now? I'm, my, I, I have no idea. We, I'm, I'm stumped. I'm lost words. Immediately, God sprung into action. Why? Because God takes what the word, world purposes for evil and He turns it into good. Friends, God is not scared by evil. God uses evil, not creates it, but says, let me show you what the enemy purpose for darkness. I will turn for good and to glory. One of my best friends, a guy named John Tyson, says it like this. God is sovereign over all things. He's not my best friend. He's a really famous speaker. I just like to say it in case he listens to this podcast one day, wonders how much of a relationship he's missed out on. God is sovereign over all things, John says. But that doesn't mean, listen to this. He doesn't mean he causes all things. It means that He is greater than all things and can work through all things, even the darkest moments in our life. I don't believe God gave my mum cancer. I don't. But when I look back at that moment many years ago and I look at the pain and the suffering we went through, only now can I see God's hand using what the enemy purposed for evil, He turned around for good. I've had people in my life pass away. I've, had, I've seen children suffer. I've seen the worst of the worst. This stuff doesn't delight the heart of God, but God says the enemy throws the worst at us. And look, I will redeem every single moment from good. Friends, I guarantee you, the people you respect in your life are not those who've had it the easiest. It's those who've had it the hardest and they still stand and they still declare God is faithful and God is good. Why? Because God uses suffering to transform evil into something good. A guy named Kenneth Keeley says this, God is able to exercise His sovereignty primarily by His omniscience. Now, Scott talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Omniscience is all-knowing. In this way, God controls all things, but is not the determinative cause of all things. It was not God that sold Joseph into slavery. It was not God that led Potiphar's wife to want to cheat on her husband. It was not God who said to the prisoners, forget Joseph. It was not God who continued to see the brokenness happen in Joseph's story. But it was God who chose to make and form a man who would be elevated into the leading part of Potiphar's house. It was God who made and formed a man who elevated him to the leading part of the prison. It was God who gave dreams to Pharaoh that only one man in prison would be able to interpret. It is God who forms and changes and shifts the story. When we read the Bible, friends, you cannot tell me that God is intimidated by evil, but we see a God that looks suffering in the eye and says, let me show you how I weave it together for good. The problem with life, friends, is that it doesn't make sense in the moment. Why was it that Jesus got angry at the disciples in the storm? When he was asleep in the boat and they cried out, Jesus, don't you care if we're going to die? That's because in that moment, he was asleep. The question they should have asked, not, Jesus, do you not care? But how come we're screaming while he's sleeping? What does he know that we don't? Friends, sometimes what we need God to do is not to be as hyperactive or as, or as excitable or as reactive as we are. God is the steady hand saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? There is no way you can read the story of Joseph and walk away with any other conclusion then God is a God who takes evil and turns it into good. What other faith says that? Atheism doesn't say that. It says you're responsible for turning evil into good. How's that working out for us? How's human ability working out for us? It's failing. It's failing. This should comfort us because in the middle of my storm, friends, I've got a couple of them at the moment, if I'm honest. 
There's a couple of things at the moment where I'm like, God, I'd love you to, like, do you even care about me? What are you doing? And as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm just hearing the steady voice of God asking me, Michael, do you trust me? And here's my answer often. Yeah, I'd trust you if you did what I wanted. If God did what Joseph wanted, he would never have been governor of Egypt. And friends, you might hear me say that and think, right, so if I hold out for long enough, my life ends well. No, but your eternity will. Your eternity will. Friends, who are you trusting with the story of your life? In Romans 8.28, we read this truth, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him. Why? Because we love an eternal God, not a temporary God. I'm called according to whose purpose? Not my empire. Not my kingdom, but his. And so I realize my life is but a finite breath. Everyone breathe out really fast. That breath's gone. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, your life is but a breath. And so when you lay it down, you realize that God can take every breath in this world and using that oxygen, weave it together to create a beautiful story. But on its own, it is but a faint whisper. It's a pastor whose son took his life in the United States. Ten days after his son's suicide, he hopped up on the platform and he read this text. He read this text which said, God takes all things, works together for good, all things for those who love him. And he said this, I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come of it. But I realize I only see partly. I only know what's happening now. And God's reminded me of the big metal ships. These ships that we make today that are made of metal. If you take a piece of metal and you throw it in the ocean, what will it do? Sink. That doesn't make sense because we take these things that sink and we use them to create a ship that floats. Steel shouldn't float, but when the shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted into pace, then that massive steel ship is virtually unsinkable, he says. Taken by itself, my son's death is senseless. Throw it into the sea of Romans 8.28 and it sinks. But still I believe that when the eternal shipbuilder has finally finished, when God has outworked his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy of my son's death will somehow work out to our eternal good. I trust the shipbuilder. Despite human agency and free will, God refuses to let the metal sink. He turns our worst mistakes into his glory. John Tyson texted me this week and just said this, God's sovereignty. Thanks for laughing. God's sovereignty is not a burden to be shouldered, but a comfort to be embraced. Friends, we need a God that prevails. And the Bible tells us that God prevails. My life tells me that God prevails. This church is here because God prevails. You may be walking in the middle of the storm. And instead of asking why, why don't you say, God, what? What are you doing right now? What are you doing right now? Because God prevails through one truth. God prevails because forgiveness wins. God prevails because forgiveness wins. At a family leadership summit a couple of years ago, a man named Donald Trump, you may have heard of him, spoke about his faith. He told the audience that he was a Christian, that he goes to church and that he loves God. When asked about seeking forgiveness from God, Donald replied, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think I need forgiveness. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, friends, if you're an American, you choose to vote for Trump or not Trump. This is not commentary on who we should vote for. You will never see us do this from this platform. But it's just an analogy because this is what a political leader said. I'm a Christian, but I don't need God to forgive me. And I think some of us start there. That we're here today because we literally think that we can be forgiven or we can be made better because we can do enough. Before we can get to why we forgive, I just need to start with, do you know that not only will we all need forgiveness, but everyone in this room one day will need to be forgiven. And it's really hard to do unless you know the power of forgiveness. 
The brothers knew this. They hadn't forgiven themselves. They said to each other, surely we're being punished because of our brother Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he played with his life for us. But we would not listen. That's why it's distressed. Come on us. And then they spent the rest of their life under the weight of this sin. When I was in school, I was taught that forgiveness was forced upon you. When someone would you know, punch me in the face and someone say, sorry, I'd say, oh, that's okay. And then the teacher would always come and be like, no, you never say that's okay. It's not okay. What do you say? You say, I forgive you. Say, I forgive you, Michael. I'm like, okay, I forgive you. And then it was like this thing where I was like, that was forgiveness, something you were forced to do, not chose to do. And apparently that one we were meant to be able to play together well. I don't think this is forgiveness. Forgiveness is more than just a nice thing to say to someone. See, if I went to Scott's house and I just decided to break one of Scott's lamps, really nice lamps. Scott loves lamps, in case you're wondering. You should buy him one. He'd really appreciate it. And I break one of Scott's lamp. The, the truth of the story is this, is that that lamp costs something and will cost someone. And so Scott might say, don't worry about it. I forgive you. But Scott still has to pay the price. Or I have to pay the price. For forgiveness to happen, someone has to pay the price of what's done wrong. See, forgiveness isn't just a nice thing we say to someone. It's recognizing that either I or the other person will pay the price. And forgiveness is choosing. Here's the controversial thing. Forgiveness is choosing not to make the other person pay. Now, maybe in that moment, God, Scott might forgive me and I might still pay and that, that, that's fine. But we're talking about a bigger idea here. Forgiveness is choosing not to make the other person pay. Because you might be like, you saying, Michael, that justice shouldn't be done. I'm not saying people shouldn't be sent to prison. I'm saying I don't think prison is ever enough. When people are actually hurt, they don't care that someone's choose, gone, to, uh, gone to prison. Revenge says, I still need more. I still need more. And forgiveness is choosing to say, I will never be paid back. I choose to swallow the cost. See, this is what Joseph offers his brothers. But sometimes we place ourselves in the shoes of Joseph and we're like, cool, how do I forgive? Rather than actually asking the question, am I forgiven? We have to be so careful in the story of Joseph because it's actually a really bad story of forgiveness. I know this might be new, but let me just highlight why. Because you can't use Joseph's story to motivate you to forgive. Why? Because you're not the governor of Egypt. You don't have like a bunch of servants in your household. You're not standing in front of someone else right now that's hurt you with all the power in the land going, wow, I forgive you. To be honest, it would have been a little bit easier for Joseph to forgive his brothers than for many of us. We're expected to forgive and not from a place of power, but from a place of lack. We're not expected to forgive others from where all of our life has worked out well for us, but actually sometimes when nothing's worked out, it's in that moment when it's actually hardest for us to forgive. C.S. Lewis says this, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to actually forgive someone. And the truth is, friends, you can't be a Christian and not need forgiveness. I don't know if Donald Trump's a Christian or not. That's between him and God. But I know this, you can't be a Christian and not need forgiveness. Why? Because it's core tenet of the Christian faith is this. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need God to forgive us, which is why we can join in in 1 John 1 verse 9 and know that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and, and, and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, maybe you've walked in here today with guilt. Or maybe you haven't and you've walked in here today holding someone else guilty. The first thing I would say is, do you know that you are either forgiven or need forgiveness? A farmer had two animals one day, a pig and a sheep, and they both escaped. He went out looking for them both, trying to find out where they were. Finally, he heard the bleats of the sheep go, and so he went and found the sheep and the goat wallowing in a pool of mud, stuck and able to get out. But only the sheep was bleeding. The pig was having a great time. That's kind of our story, isn't it? We're all stuck in mud. Some of us are calling for help. All of us have just chosen to accept our broken reality. Be the sheep, not the pig. Do you know that there is forgiveness available for you right now? That there was a Savior named Jesus who gave His life to give you life. Friends, whatever shame you're carrying, it can end today. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we must be the sheep calling for help and choose to allow the Savior to free us from the mud. 
Have you asked for forgiveness? Because C.S. Lewis would say this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. This is what we see happen in this story. Joseph forgives the inexcusable. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come, come to me. Come to become close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And I asked this question, hang on, Jesus before Jesus, how did Joseph forgive? And I just want to put my own preacher's inflection on this because as I meditate over the last couple of weeks, every moment of Joseph's life, what was also said, God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. I believe unlike many people in the Bible that Joseph had an intimate encounter with the character of God at every stage of his life. He knew that this God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that he was a merciful God. But friends, we have a better image than Joseph does. We have an image of a Savior that doesn't choose to push away. He chooses to bring close. But sometimes we struggle to do that. And there are some reasons why I think we struggle to forgive others because number one, we make others into monsters and we make ourselves into saints. The first step of forgiveness is this. We have to humanize all people. Miroslav Volf says this long quote, stick with me, it's worth it. That's what every preacher says. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God or the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. What's he saying? When someone hurts us, we make them traitors. When we hurt others, we go, it was a mistake. What he's saying here is, the Christian says, hey, we're all broken. Humanize the other. No one was born with the evil desire to kill another human. Sin is something we're all born into. But evil is something that grows in our hearts as we're left on our own devices in a broken world. And when we don't forgive, friends, we don't just help unforgiveness. We actually perpetuate sin. Sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we think that forgiveness is trust. Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we trust the person. Forgiveness means that we let that person go from having to pay us for what's been done wrong. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we trust people that are unsafe. There are people who should be in prison. People can be sent to prison and be forgiven. People can be held accountable by the justice system and be forgiven. But forgiveness says, I no longer seek vengeance. I no longer think badly of you. I choose to set you free. You are being submitted into the hands of God. Forgiveness is not an excuse. Forgiveness is not diminishing what happened. Joseph's not turning around being like, wasn't a big deal you sent me into slavery? Whatever. No, that was a big deal. It was wrong. But at some stage, we have to choose to say, hate stops with me. Hate stops here. Look back over Joseph's story. Where did he come from? He came from Abraham who gave birth to Isaac and Ishmael, two brothers that were set warring against each other. Isaac gave birth to, he didn't give birth, his wife gave birth, anatomy, that's how it happens. He gave birth, she gave birth to to Esau and Jacob, two brothers which hated each other. There was enmity sent against them. And then that generational sin was passed down to the 12 and 13 brothers who they sold one of their youngest into slavery. Do you see how the generational sin starts to be passed down, starts to be passed down, and then someone had to stand up and go, hey, it ends here with me. I forgive here. Not because it justifies what my parents, what what my brothers have done, but because I refuse to raise children that will perpetuate this cycle of hatred. Martin Luther King says this, we must develop and and breathe and and have this ability to forgive, the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Friends, who in your life, if I was to mention their name, you'd probably say this, oh yeah, 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 they're a great person. Um, Hey, just one thing about that person. That might be a sign that you still have someone to forgive because we still want to let people know who they are. I have people like that. There was a man in Ireland who was at a, his daughter's hospital practice when a terrorist bomb of the IRA was set off. 
He writes, we were both thrown forward, rubble and stones and whatever in and around and over us and under us. I was aware of the pain in my right shoulder and I shouted to my daughter, Is that, was she all right? She said, yes. And she found my hand. Is that your hand, Dad? And every couple of seconds, I would say, hey, Maria, you all right? She'd say, yes, Dad. She'd squeeze my hand. He goes on to say after about five minutes, he said, Maria, you all right? She said, Dad, I love you. Under the rubble, that was the last time he heard his daughter's voice. When they set him free, he said, I'm fine, but my daughter, I don't think she's okay. His daughter would go on to pass moments after being freed from the rubble. When interviewed about how he felt about the terrorists, he says this, don't ask me for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I'd probably end my life. But my life is part of a greater plan and God is good. And so I believe we shall meet again. I've lost my daughter and we shall miss her, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people, those terrorists tonight and every night. May God forgive them. Sky Jathani, I finish with this, says, Does God's forgiveness mean we don't care about justice? Does God's forgiveness mean there is no consequence for evil? No. What it means is that we leave justice and vengeance in the hands of God. He alone can judge rightly. Our job as agents of His kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God and Christ has forgiven us. Unfortunately for Joseph, we have an advantage. We have a Savior who, when he was at his worst, did the greatest thing. When Jesus was pinned to a cross with nails through his wrists, spear through his side, his body stripped, beaten, looking at the very ones he created, hate him. He cries out to God. And what does he say? And say, God, help me, forgive them. And he says, God, forgive them. Those who hate me, those who hurt me, those who pin me here, they know not what they do. And in this moment, we find the strength for our own forgiveness of others. Not because it feels good, but because it's the only way that God is going to roll back the sin of hatred and anger and violence in our world. Let me finish with reading that last line again. Our job as agents of His kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others just as God and Christ has forgiven us. Friends, our God prevails because forgiveness wins. Are we ready to live out those truths today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Holy Spirit, would you just come in this place and speak? might have this wrong, but just as we're in this moment, I just, um, I, just I, I want to start here. I want to ask, is there anyone in this room right now that's walked in with guilt and shame? And you're saying right now, I need to not earn my forgiveness. I need someone to give forgiveness to me. The Savior, Lord Jesus Christ says, come follow me, repent and believe, and I'll make you clean. Friends, you do not have to walk out of here the way you walked in that's you today and you need to know the forgiveness of God for the first time or the hundredth time that he would be your Lord, your Savior and your friend right now in this room would you just raise your hand wherever you are thank you so much, just keep your hands raised I'm going to pray for you in a moment, thank you so much thank you so much friends with with people's hands raised I just want to pray a prayer with you and there are Christians in this room we're going to pray this prayer together because we all need forgiveness today but some of you, you need it today so would everyone in this room loudly for 8 a.m. cool and gather response, repeat these words after me. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my mistakes, for my sins. 
when I've hurt others. Forgive me. Wash me clean. I choose to follow you as my Lord, my Saviour and my friend. Make me new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, I thank you right now that four people raise their hand, whether they're a Christian from, from many years or this is their first time. Lord, would you wash them clean? Someone in this room right now needs to hear this. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. A new word is spoken over you. You are no longer a betrayer. You're no longer an adulterer. You are no longer a sinner. You're no longer uh, someone who can not be trusted. You are forgiven. A son and a daughter of God. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm short on time, so I just want to do this last one real quick. I just sensed two people today. Number one, there's someone in this room right now. You're in the middle of a storm and you're struggling to trust God in the storm. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet wherever you are right now? If that's you, if you're in the middle of a storm, you're like, I need to trust that God's got this. It's okay, I might have had that wrong, but I'll wait a moment longer. I'd love to pray for you. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you so much for standing. Is there anyone else today that needs prayer for the storm they're walking through? Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, would you stand? Would you stand with me? Friends, we just got two or three people standing. Can I just ask two or three Christians just to go and move and just stand with them right now? We're just going to pray for them. Just place your hand. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've got breath in your lungs, you believe in Jesus, that's you. Just you don't have to, you don't have to have a big word. You can just stand with them. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray for every person standing right now. God, I believe that you are in their boat and you are guiding them through. You are guiding them through the storm. In Jesus' name, I pray, would they see you in their boat? Would they trust you in the storm? Would they trust the one who holds the pen? Jesus, you are good and you are God. Help us to trust you. Friends, if you're standing with someone and praying, would you just stand with them just for a moment to say, God, is there anything you want me to pray for this person? We're going to sing together. And even as we do, just stay with them. Just stand with them and allow God to minister. Everyone else, would you stand to your feet with me this afternoon, this morning? Some of you are like, yeah, you preached long enough. Could be afternoon. God's grace is for us all. We're now going to sing a song where the first line is, now I'm alive to tell a story. How I've overcome. It's by the goodness and mercy and the power of His blood. Friends, you're going to see me raise my hands like this. Can I tell you why? It's not because I'm weird. It's not because I've got a question. It is because I want a high five, but let's do it later. It's because I'm surrendering my life to God. If you need to surrender your life to God and ask God to help you forgive, I wonder, would you just stretch your hands out in front of you right now today? If you're really bold, you could raise your hands. Let's worship God together. May this song be our worship today. Let's sing. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.